0: Anne Vandermeer is the award-winning publisher and editor of Buzz City Press. She's now the fiction editor for Weird Tales. Jeff Vandermeer is the founder and co-editor of the Ministry of Whimsy Press. He's a two-time winner of the World Fantasy Award. He's the author of *City of Saints and Madmen*, *Shriek*, and *Afterward*. Finch and the non-fiction guide to writing *Book Life*. Together, they've edited anthologies including *Best American Fantasy*, *The New Weird*. Fast Ships, Black Sails, and Steampunks. Thank you for joining me, Anne and Jeff Vandermeer. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Now, I'd like each of you to individually tell me, Anne, why don't you start, what got you headed down the rabbit hole of fantasy fiction? When did it first strike you as something worth reading, and why?
1: Oh, gosh. You'd have to go way back to when I first started reading. Mm-hmm. My dad had an amazing collection of the original Wizard of Oz books, and I'm not just talking about the first one, but I'm talking about the entire set of all the adventures in Oz. And I think that's what got me started. I, I just loved reading those books. I loved the artwork, and that's the type of of fiction that I that I am drawn to mostly. Now, uh, so from there, I just you know decided that's what I wanted to do.
0: Now tell tell me you're you're a child reading these books what about the fact that these books had all this stuff that wasn't in your world drew you what drew you to that world as opposed to books that were about the world you were living in
1: well i think it was that i found it so exciting to me and so different because the world that i was living in wasn't always so wonderful you know i um came from a a broken home and back in those days that was not the usual thing like it is today and so there was some sadness but but also because they were my father's books it was a way for me to connect with my father to have this bond with him when he wasn't there and so because those were his books and it was what he loved that's what brought me into it and that so it became what I loved as well and I continue to share that bond with him today
0: Jeff tell me about your first uh, fantasy fiction
2: (laughs) Well, the, the oddest the thing is that in, other than like children's books and like I guess the C.S. Lewis books, the first thing I remember is my dad, when we were traveling overseas, giving me these copies of Lord of the Rings. And I think I might have been like nine, actually I was probably like eight, and I couldn't really understand them. It was like reading something in a foreign language. <laughs> so they are actually very compelling because of that, because they were mysterious, because I could only understand some of the words, and so I had to kind of parse together the meaning. And in some ways, that first reading is the clearest one to me because they became somehow larger than life, larger than they were. Um, at the same time, I could really relate to things like Frodo's quest at the end where he's going through all this desperate stuff to to, to accomplish what he, what he needs to accomplish. Uh, and then the other thing is basically, you know, I never really made a differentiation between fantasy and non-fantasy. When I was first starting out in publishing, I actually edited a mainstream uh, poetry journal It was when I started writing fiction and my worldview just happened to be surreal and that I I basically was setting things not in the real world that I came kind of to fantasy completely. And what I realized over time is that since my family traveled a lot because we were in the Peace Corps, that writing fantasy was one of the only ways to reconcile the different settings. Um, I didn't have one place to write about, and so instead I had to kind of make all these different places make sense if I was going to
0: write. Tell us about your travels as a child with, with in the Peace Corps. That's really interesting. Where did you go? Well, we were assigned to
2: uh, the Fiji Islands. This was when they were uh, still allowing families uh, to, to join the Peace Corps back then. And uh, we spent, uh, I think, five years there. But in between, we traveled uh, around the world. Basically, instead of taking the equivalent of raises, my, my family took travel vouchers. So when we finally came back completely, we spent six or seven months just traveling literally across the entire world before we got back to the U.S. And for a kid who's like you know nine, That's a that's a huge deal. I mean, to see a trance dance in Bali or to be attacked by a monkey in Calcutta or or to be in, you know, Kuala Lumpur or Kathmandu and just be basically immersed in all kinds of different cultures uh, was one of the best things that that, uh, my parents ever did for us.
0: It seems that in many ways, compared to an average suburban life, uh, life in an American suburb, you almost lived in a world that was closer to the fantasy worlds of J.R. R. Tolkien than it was to uh, the American suburbia. Well, I mean, for
2: a kid, yeah. I mean, to, to the people living in those countries, that's that's everyday life. But for a kid, going to so many different places and seeing so many amazing things and Getting into trouble and <laughs> and uh, getting lost. I mean, I once was lost in Rome for like two or three hours um, when I was nine, and that was that was pretty scary. But it was also a formative thing that I use in my fiction.
1: Well, you also like to get lost now.
2: That's true, and I think that's partly because it's something of that. that you <laughs> look forward to, <laughs> because you never know what you're going to find. Yeah, not on the way to the radio
0: station, but yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> you guys met in part because of fantasy fiction, mm-hmm. I would guess. Is that the case? Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah, I was actually running a magazine in um,
2: Gainesville, Florida. And, and Anne, I has
1: just I had just started a magazine here yeah. in Tallahassee and was looking for advice. So she came And Jeff was one of the people that I asked.
2: Yeah, so she came down to an event that I was hosting um and uh and we compared notes and everything and became friends and then gradually became something something more than that. So
0: Well talk about how the literature of the fantastic Uh, informs your social life and your social interactions, because I think that some of those surreal and strange textures really affect the way that you look at life and the way you interact with other people.
1: Well, a lot of my friends are creators of some sort. They're writers or they're editors or they're artists or musicians or something like that, and most of the work that they're drawn to is the same type of thing that I am also drawn to. So it all is interrelated. But even my friends that are not creative in that way still have that creative juice going. I know that um, we like to play games on Facebook every now and then and do these little um, kind of surreal little stories where somebody puts up a sentence and someone does another one and we continue on like that. And I know that my friends have a lot of fun with that. For instance, um, a couple of weeks ago, I posted a status because my odometer in my car finally went to 123456. And for some reason, I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So I put that up on Facebook, and all of a sudden, a whole story came out. Friends that I have from all over the world started making up a story about my odometer. And I thought that was pretty cool.
2: Well, um, I think I think it's, it's, um, it's twofold. There is a certain amount of, I guess, tribalism within genre that I don't like. But at, the fact is, as a beginning writer growing up, it was really useful to have a community that was so tight-knit but also so welcoming. I mean, really the idea of pay it for is very much in the fantasy and science fiction community. And so as a beginning writer, you can go to any convention and you can meet you, you know, your your heroes basically. And uh and and you can converse with them and you can talk with them about writing, and, and there are very few people who are standoffish. The uh the first encounter I actually had with one of my heroes was a little bit off though. Um there's a writer named S. P. Somtau, and I met him at a World Fantasy Convention. And one problem is I was really nervous because I was like 21 or something. And I was sitting down on, on this leather couch and he came up to me and and I said, I, I was expecting you to be seven feet tall. And it came out the wrong way. It, it sounded really bad <laughs> and uh, because he wasn't actually seven feet tall. Um, but I was trying to say that in my imagination, he was this giant who was astride the earth. And, uh, you know, so I had some of these early encounters that didn't go quite as well as I would have imagined. But um, in general, everyone was extremely nice, and it, it allows you to function. It allows you to, to kind of get your sea legs um, and kind of get some confidence.
0: Could you both talk about how um, the literature of the fantastic informs or, or infuses i mean you're married <laughs> yeah. it's must have this must have some kind of odd effect because i mean you you guys are both living in different worlds when you're writing and creating or editing you're coming shuttling almost it's like commuting from uh ambergris to well, back to tallahassee <laughs> well i mean it's um it's it goes
2: beyond that i mean <laughs> the uh, I'll, I'll let Anne tell about Aaron and and, and the magazines but um when you go into our house, we didn't realize until recently, until we had our new cat sitter come over, just how crazy it had gotten. Because we have a a giant penguin and a giant dragon head in the living room and we all have all this surreal art and to us it's completely normal but but to bystanders sometimes I mean she came in and she kind of like you know she saw this like five foot dragon head and this five foot giant blow up penguin <laughs> which was given to us by a friend and, and kind of did a double take so in that sense we're kind of surrounded by the artifacts of fantasy every day and we it kind of it is part of your daily life um, I think it's just part of having a daily life that is of And part of the imagination, and I mean, everything we're talking about with regard to fantasy is really about the imagination. And uh, what I love, and I tell this story a lot, but Carol Bly has a great book called *The Passionate Accurate Story*, and she talks about a family whose daughter comes back from playing uh, to dinner and says, "A new family's moved in next door." And the father says, "You know, well, tell us about them." And she says, "Well, they're a family of bears." And the father has the the choice of either saying, "They're not bears," you know, "Tell us for real." Or, you know, saying, okay, well, tell us something about these bears. And, and, and that kind of shows you kind of the sense of play that's involved here, I think. And and that, that's something that's very important to our daily lives.
1: And also, uh, raising kids, being surrounded by that, I had a magazine, and my husband also had a magazine. And so my daughter just took it for granted. And one day she was over at a, at a girlfriend's house. I think she must have been about eight or nine. And she said to her girlfriend, well, what magazine does your family do? Because she just assumed that all families had their own magazine. That was just normal to her. And and, and that was part of her da- daily life. One of the other things is we we do like to play games and do a lot of fun things. And I had a weird way of approaching uh, Scrabble. Everybody knows how to play Scrabble. But when I play Scrabble with my kids, I had this extra way of doing it, telling them that they could make up any word that they wanted, it didn't have to be a real word. But if they did up, make up a word, they would have to be able to define it and use it in a sentence. And if we all agreed that it made sense, then they got the points. Yeah, that kind so of that me was nuts, something that, that <laughs> drove my husband crazy because he wanted real words. But, you I know. want real words. <laughs> but my for my kids, it was a great way for them to grow up.
0: Now, this is really interesting. This suggests that... One of the things I, I like what what Jeff was talking about is you know the the life of the imagination, and one of the things that you know the imagination allows us to do is to talk about things that in real life that we can't really articulate any other way, and that's what I think one of the 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 powers of the kind of uh, fantasy fiction that uh, Jeff writes and you edit, and, and so tell me about how you know the your lives of the imagination allow you to maybe approach your real life in a way you couldn't otherwise do so. Well, I mean, I've, I've had this from a personal and non-personal
2: aspect of my last two novels. Shriek and Afterward is basically about this dysfunctional family. It has two, uh, um, narrators who can't be trusted and is, is literally basically a family chronicle set over 60 years. And, um, it includes a lot of personal stuff from my life. It's definitely, you know, changed and and refocused and repurposed in the context of this fantastical city. But there is no way that I would have been able to do that without the distance of fantasy. I mean, it would have taken me another 10 years to kind of process it in my head if I was doing a mainstream literary novel of that with no fantasy element. Um, So that's one thing. Then in Finch, you know, those of us, even those of us who aren't directly involved in, in some of the things that, that, that the U.S. has been involved with foreign policy-wise over the last eight years, feel it deeply, you know, feel some of these things deeply. And so Finch allowed me to, again, recontextualize all of this with the distance necessary to write about it effectively, not write about it didactically or out of anger, but with a little bit of distance, which I think is really useful to the reader because otherwise you wind up preaching to the reader and you don't allow them to make up their own minds.
1: I think also with editing fiction, it's easier for a reader to approach a lot of these themes in the fantastical setting. And if you're hitting them over the head with it, they're going to walk away from it. They're not going to get anything out of it. But when you approach it from the the fantasy viewpoint and perspective, people can get into what you're telling them, and they might not even realize what you're trying to say but they'll get something out of it and something comes out at the the other end. I know that there are um, certain stories that will always be very close to my heart that speak to me in certain ways that I couldn't get from realistic fiction because of the relationships between the characters, even though one of the characters might be this horrible shape-changing monster and the other character is this little tiny girl. But those relationships and how they approach each other are so important, and the fantasy setting is just a backdrop, making it a little bit easier for somebody to maybe get into the story.
2: And and the other thing that's important, I think, is, again, the the point of view that's surreal or fantastical goes across what we'd call publishing boundaries. Like um, uh, A Soldier of the Great War by Mark Helprin has no fantastical element, but when you read that book, his use of metaphor, his use of language, he sees the world in a way that's not necessarily realistic all the time. And so you can find science fiction, fantasy writers who are very are very much realists and approach the world in, in a realist way. And you can find writers with no fantasy element in their books, but their books read like they're absurdists, like they're surrealists because they see the real world in a, in a different way.
0: This is a fascinating uh, observation. I've never never considered that. Uh, could you talk a- about maybe some of your work, both the works that have influenced you as as mm-hmm. writers and editors, mm-hmm. and, and how those, you know, do go across genres?
1: Well, one thing that I wanted to point out, I don't know if you've noticed it, but right now zombies are very, very popular. <laughs> there's, a, there's a movie out there called Zombieland, and there's all kinds of zombie things going on, zombie books, and, and zombies are very, very popular right now. I think even more so than vampires. And I think the reason why that, that's happening is because people are kind of looking at this post-apocalyptic world and, and that's kind of their way of dealing with it. When you think about some of the um, science fiction movies that came out in the 50s, you know, um, Attack of Mars and stuff like that, it was all based on what was coming out after the the um, World War II and the, the Atomic War and all that. It, people's fears and how they're dealing with, with um the world around them. And so now you see people are talking about zombies. And I think that it's not just what's going on politically and globally around the world. They're also looking at the environment, global warming. And I think they're also looking at the disconnect between humans because technology has taken over to such a degree that most of our interactions with other people are through technology, whether it's on the internet or through the phone or a text message, there's not as much face-to-face. So I think that you can make an argument for that's the reason why people are all excited about zombies. That's another metaphor for what we're feeling today.
2: Well, um, with regard to touchstones that you were talking about, too, um, my t- touchstones t- tend to be like uh, writers like Edward Whittemore, who's kind of like Thomas Pynchon, but not known as, as, as much, uh, uh, Vladimir Nabokov, Angela Carter... And um, someone like Nabokov, like in Pale Fire, I find deeply fantastical because I think sometimes the fantastical element comes out of absurdism, looking at the world and finding institutions and certain situations to be fundamentally darkly funny. um, And that creates a sense, like even in a book like Catch-22, that to me is surreal. Uh, And I think someone like Angela Carter even when she was writing realistic fiction, which she did on occasion, could not really get away from what the surrealists called this idea of convulsive beauty, this idea of unexpected beauty that in some way liberates your imagination. And that also is a a key component, I think, of fantastical fiction. And Edward Whittemore he found a sense of play in history. I mean, he re- basically rewrote histories, and he understood that the most history books are, are you know, and and, and most historians are, are deeply eccentric people, and that beyond the basic dates and, 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 you know, this battle happened there, you know, a lot of times we're getting, we're getting, I mean, you know, some historians even admit this later. They say later, well, if I hadn't been going through that bad divorce, I wouldn't have focused so much on that particular part and emphasized this or that. <laughs> and so um, you begin to get this sense of, of even nonfiction being in some way not real, right? So when you get to that point, I think you could you could almost make a case for everything being fantasy on some level.
0: Well, uh, I'm wondering <clears throat> if you guys could talk about um, just the difference between editing fantasy and writing fantasy. Hmm. Because Jeff, you write fantasy, and and you edit it, and you guys have come together to edit uh, a number of anthologies across a variety of themes. So talk about the difference between editing the fantasy and writing fantasy and kind of dipping in and out of fantasy worlds.
1: Well, I can't really talk about the writing of fantasy, but I can say something about the editing. Um, the editing process for me is really Different depending on what the project is. The type of work that I do when I'm reading um, original fiction for Weird Tales magazine is completely different than when I'm looking for something to fit into one of our reprint anthologies like what we did when we did Steampunk. So what what happens when I'm trying to read original fiction for Weird Tales magazine or for another anthology is I I start reading the story and seeing whether or not that story just takes me away if I can get so engrossed in it and it pulls me all the way through, I know that I've got something there. That's something that's pretty basic to me. And as far as whether or not I'm going to use it for a particular project, I always have to read something two, three, maybe even four times before I make a final decision because I need to make sure that whatever it is that I'm selecting for whatever project, that it fits the project and that it fits everything around that project. So it's not just finding an awesome story, but making the story, finding the right story for the right project.
2: Yeah, and if we um, have a disagreement, it's usually over whether something's correct for a project. I'm, I'm very much a guy who likes scope creep, because in scope creep you find a lot of interesting things, but for example, on the fake disease guide that we did, uh, that wound up meaning that a 200-page book became a 350-page book, so sometimes it, you know, and that was good for the project, but not necessarily good for the publisher. Um, so, so Anne... Anne is focused on that stuff. I tend to 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 kind of like <laughs> say this is these are all the possible things we can do, and I'd like to do all of them and Then Anne kind of says, yeah, we can't do those. you know and then we talk about the individual stories. I don't think there's a different process for reading fantasy as opposed to reading anything else. It's just simply you know again what fits the project and then how it fits into my writing is that I learn a lot from doing the anthologies. I learn a lot from having to scrutinize these stories and talk about them with Anne and have to justify their existence in in a particular anthology. And also, again, you're kind of getting into the guts of them in a different way, and that that does inform the fiction. Um, The writing of the fiction, uh, again, you know, like when we teach workshops, we don't do that much different in terms of how we teach to, you know, a science fiction fantasy workshop as opposed to just a general writing workshop. The difference, I think, is the same thing that like a, historical novelist has to deal with, which is how do you parse out the information? How do you provide an entryway for the reader that preserves the uniqueness and kind of the surreal quality of the fantasy, but also allows them enough space to process what you're giving them? And you know, what kind of orders and progressions, what kind of pacing you do to do that? So openings, I think, are really something I work on a lot. And I work on them even more now that I know I have an audience because when I started out in indie press, I had no idea. When my first book came out from a commercial publisher, suddenly I had all these people telling me what they thought of, of my fantasy fiction and what I should do and not do and all that. And so that does kind of re cha- change how you see the dynamic of the reader-writer relationship. Um, and that's very important, I think, for the fantasy especially because sometimes you can create something that, because it's not set in the real world, the reader has a hard time you know, kind of getting into, but but also then you have to weigh that against the demands of the structure of the story.
0: Oh, one thing that strikes me is that all of us started out reading science fiction and fantasy back in a time when the year 2010 was Definitely a science fictional future that nobody could understand, although many people predicted very blithely it would be like this, it's going to be like this. It's obviously turned out to be very different from that. And I think that maybe that makes both science fiction and fantasy more pertinent for people who are living in the present because we're already aware that we're living in something that nobody could have predicted.
2: Well, I mean, I mean I, I put it this way, it's like who could have predicted a long time ago that you'd put a small piece of plastic into a machine and get cash out. And that's kind of a magical transaction from someone's point of view a, a while back, right? <laughs> and so um even technology to some degree um has this kind of magical aspect. And I think I think that's why fantasy like Anne was saying earlier about um being able to reconcile things even with the zombie fiction for example. Um That's why it 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 strikes a chord with readers because it's a kind of a way of them being able to reconcile this world that you know sometimes I think our reptile brains haven't quite caught up with, you know we use all this stuff are used by it sometimes the technology we have, but we still don't quite you know some of on some level we're still you know using flint to (laughs) to make fire in our heads you know so,
1: but all the all the earliest storytelling that we did way back was always fantastical. The stories that we told each other before anything was written down, it was always those types of things. If you look at fairy tales and things that were handed down, take a look at at the Bible. The Bible is basically stories of people, and a lot of fantastical, bizarre, and unusual things happen in those stories. So we've always been telling people stories. we and, and and that's how we communicate with each other, not just by saying this, that, or the other and being very direct, but by telling each other stories.
2: And, and I truly believe that this is a way of strengthening your imagination. And I think one of the things that we lose a lot with mass pop culture and and the fact that ideas get transmitted so quickly and we, we basically spout then these received ideas you know, that we haven't really processed through our heads is the more you can get into a really good book and a, a book that really stretches your imagination, the more you are... Are able to think independently, the more that you are able to be creative in your own life. I mean, you really have to exercise these muscles. I mean, the imagination is a muscle. If you don't exercise it, if you allow information just come at you and absorb it rather than processing it, you know, having to read a book and make the words, make a picture in your head and draw you along, you know, as opposed to a movie or something, which is a great art form. But again, it's right there visually for you, ready made. um, I think you lose something. And I, I think it's really important.
0: One of the things that that interests me now is that uh, about fantasy is that it's really it's a timeless form of fiction. It's always pertinent. I mean, The Lord of the Rings seems as uh, applicable now as it did when it was written, even though it applies to a completely different set of circumstances. Well, we well, see that
2: that 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 strikes me as really interesting about Lord of the Rings because you know it was seen at the time as against te- anti technology and 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 for kind of a fe- not a feudal order but a a kind of class situation. You know, with Tolkien being kind of upper class. And now you can read it as basically like part of the environmental movement, you know, because those factories and everything are part of the of what we need to deal with now to combat global warming. And and the idea of a sustainable village <laughs> is actually something that <laughs> you know, I don't know how sustainable that Hobbit village would be if you really broke it down, but um, but you can see that, that a reader today in the current context might might read that differently.
1: That, that's how you know when you have a classic piece of literature there, when it can speak to every generation in different ways.
2: Yeah. But so you do have to get rid of the transitions now because he was very big on these little transitions between getting to places that people just aren't really uh, willing to accept now as readers. <laughs> or Tom Bombadil. Get rid of him. <laughs>
0: Uh, one thing that fantasy is now uh, becoming has long been considered kind of an outsider form of literature, and it's been happy that way. And you guys have been happy, I think, as part of the outsider uh, aspect of it.
2: Well, I think um, I don't know. I mean, I I always feel like I have a foot in two camps because I I I my books do best when when they reach a genre audience, but also a, a, a audience that doesn't read fantasy, but is willing to accept things like Borges or Italo Calvino or uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, people like that. And so uh, to some degree, there is a category thing going on. Like if you go to certain countries in Europe, you'll find that my books are marketed as mainstream literary along with everything else. Because like in the Czech Republic, their sense of the absurd just absorbs their entire lives. I mean, when they had to vote on their favorite person in history, they voted a fictional character as their top guy, you know, or a woman or whatever, I can't remember the gender, but uh so, you know, certain countries they have more, I don't want to say holes in their heads, but they have more of a capacity to to see this 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 is part of the a broader s- a spectrum of literature. And then of course, there's always going to be a difference between a, a marketing category that's trying to get books in front of a particular type of reader and readers who just kind of browse across across those categories.
1: I don't I don't think I've ever felt like I've been an outsider dealing with fantasy because I have my foot in so many different worlds and all my worlds kind of overlap each other. I work in so many different areas and do so many different things that I think they just kind of all work together. If you take a look at the magazines that I've worked on, the different anthology projects, you'll see that one of the things that I love to do more than anything is to mix and match. I love to have someone who's most known for their science fiction next to somebody who's been in the New Yorker and put those people together, putting artists with musicians, putting filmmakers with writers. I mean, I've always liked to mix things up like that because when you do that, you get something totally brand new and unexpected and usually wonderful. So I've never really seen myself as being outside of anything. I've, I've, I've pretty much seen it all being one thing with all kinds of wonderfulness.
2: The uh, There is an act of translation, though, and it's something I think is actually kind of controversial within genre because there are those in genre who say, if you write fantasy, you should call yourself a fantasy writer at all times. And I'm more of the, the, the mode that that there's an act of translation that goes on, which is to say that you need to speak the language of the people that you're with. And so in certain circumstances on college campuses, I will refer myself for, to myself as being in a magic realist or surrealist camp, depending on exactly who I'm talking to, because that's an entry point for readers that they understand. If I say fantasy, they're going to immediately think Lord of the Rings. They're going to immediately think Harry Potter. And since what I write isn't really like that, it's actually not very useful to me to sometimes define myself as a fantasy writer. Within genre, not a problem. I just I just call it that. But, um, but, but it is useful, I think, sometimes to speak the language of the people that you're with. Um, the thing I do find interesting is that over the last four or five years, it has been less necessary to speak that language. More people already seem in tune with the idea of fantasy being this diverse thing which has a commercial and a literary component depending on what who the writer is just like anything else just like you have commercial airport thrillers and you have you know uh tom spingent you know
0: it, it one thing that uh is interesting is that um fantasy is really actually now just officially become a part of the, of the american canon with uh mm. library of america and editions of uh H.P. Lovecraft and Philip K. Dick, and the most recent uh, um, Tales of the Fantastic, and you're in that book, Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff. So talk about becoming part of the canon of American literature. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's kind of funny
2: because the story that they took was from a small press magazine out of Boston from 1996, I think it was. So um, I never expected (laughs) when I had that published there in this chapbook-sized magazine (laughs) that it would eventually be in the Library of America. Um, I think what that anthology proves is just that there's an absolute incredible wealth of, of great writers in fantasy. And I think it manifests itself even more in the short story length where there are fewer com- commercial considerations. I mean, you have just amazing stuff in there by Caitlin Kernan and Peter Straub. And, and uh, it, 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 it definitely holds its own against any anthology that you would pick up of material from the last 20 years that had no fantastical element and uh, so that's pretty exciting i mean it's it's um it it's exciting too because it allows again that act of translation it allows readers who might not pick up fantasy otherwise to get involved with it and 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 encounter it, encounter it in a context in which they're willing to engage it and some of those people will then go on to read the novels of the, of the people who are in the collection i think
1: i think you're also seeing a lot more on college campuses that in english departments and also mm-hmm. creative writing that professors and students are more willing to embrace uh, fan- fantasy as as a, a genre. I get lots of requests from college professors that want to teach one of our books in their class. And it's just getting more and more popular now to teach steampunk or to teach The New Weird or, or any of these other books that we've done and also other writers. So I see that as being a positive thing. It used to be considered, I remember 10, 20 years ago, that you couldn't even say fantasy or say certain writers' names in the English department at FSU, and now it's totally embraced.
2: Yeah, and I mean, it's also an accident of birth sometimes as to where do you get published. I mean, the the joke I have is that if you're Eastern European, you'll always be published in the literary mainstream no matter how fantastical your work is. Um, but if you grew up in Georgia, you might be out of luck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, it, one thing too that, that strikes me uh, about the fantasy is that, you no know, reading should be fun, mm-hmm. and one of the things that the elements of the fantastic that you use is your work is fun. I mean, it's it. it so talk about that, mm-hmm. uh, using the using the fantastic just to bring in a sense of playfulness into when serious talk. Right. Well, I mean,
2: uh, that's that's pretty deliberate, deliberate, and it kind of modulates uh, depending on how serious the work is. Because if it's very serious, there's a there's a there's a there's the danger of falling into monotone tone wise, and it's the fantastical element that provides the contrast that gives you again that entry point, that sense of play you're talking about, that then allows you to be serious without, like I said, this kind of deadly monotone falling in because. I, I really love a lot of literary mainstream stuff without a fantasy element, but sometimes I feel like if this had only been interjected with a little more absurdism, a little more something, it would balance out. Because the thing about life is that it is bittersweet. It is both funny and and dreadful and horrific and beautiful and everything else. And so to capture that sometimes, especially in this complex world we live in, I, I really, I turn to fantasy for that reason. And, um, and that sense of play definitely comes out. The last book, Finch, you know, is a little grimmer than than, than the others. So so the uh, so the the fantastical element is kind of ratcheted up there. There's a lot of I wouldn't call it eye candy, but there's a lot of stuff along the way that you can say, "Oh, that's pretty." <laughs> so that if you if you know if you're if it's a little too grim for you, you uh, you can still continue with it.
1: But you did have a lot of other outside projects that promote Finch that were more playful, a lot more fun, like the Wanted posters.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was there's I like when I do publicity to have it be as fantastical as the book that's being done. So these wanted posters where you can actually Photoshop your own head into this poster of traitors uh, to the uh, to the uh, rebel factions in, in Ambergris, the fantastical city, along with all kinds of other neat
0: stuff. Well, I'd like the two of you to talk about that because that's one of the aspects of both your work that's, I think, one of the most fun things is the way you guys get out the word about your work and, and you know, this kind of... you. Employ almost uh, surreal methods of publicity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're always looking to do something different, always um, a new challenge and something new to, to learn as well. That's one of the things that's so wonderful living with Jeff is that I'm never, ever bored because he's always surprising me with something different. Yeah, like but not every taking single out the project. Garbage. <laughs> well, no, you never surprise me with that because <laughs> I don't expect that. But <laughs> But, you know, every single project has to have something, another. Project attached to it. We, we never just do one thing. We never just put a book out and okay we're done. No, it's always a book and then we have to do something else. Like when we did the the pirate anthology, we had our contributors give us short little videos and we put together a, a short movie to promote the pirate video with original pirate music, and that was a fun project to do. And, if, and well, we also Jeff made them talking. Yeah, we also made them
2: dress up as uh, pirates um, bef- to do this, and actually, I think Kate Baker actually had one had a pi- had a parrot on her shoulder.
1: Yeah, um, one of our contributors funny. actually had a parrot, and another one of our contributors actually put an eye patch over an R two D two in his video. So, I mean, there was yeah. fun stuff like that, and um, so that was just one of the things that we did with with that book. But we do something different with every single book.
2: I, and I think actually, when you you were talking earlier rick about you know how is it around the household you know to have this it's it is actually true it's the so suffused with the fantastical that when we come to the promotion side it's very hard for us to take it completely seriously because we get bored if we just do the traditional stuff so it's almost like we get to that point you know usually by that point we're we you know we're kind of like recharging from the creative side but we still want to do something imaginative and so it's kind of like just a heat lightning creativity that comes off as a, just as a result of already always being engaged in kind of a sense of play and me always trying to pull something over on Anne as to some fact about somebody or something that might not be actually true. and um, And so the publicity kind of fits into that. There's many times when I'm really not sure if what we're going to do is actually going to sell the book, you know, but... But it's so much fun. But it's to fun do, to do. Yeah. That you get the sense. I mean, that that's if it's the key right you, there. It has right. to be fun. If it's fun for us, then hopefully it'll be fun for other people. And so, you know, we'll have something for Finch where it's just like a slogan, you know, and and kind of a cool graphic and uh, like in a banner ad or something. And you know, what is that, you know? And hopefully they'll follow it and find out. But but there's a lot of different things we do that that don't quite match up as what you'd consider like practical PR. <laughs>
0: it 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 seems to me that I mean this idea of the fantastic uh suffuses not just your fiction but also you know your lives in general
2: well, I mean it definitely defines us to some extent um but it's not a it's not a rigid definition it's something that's actually very wonderful because you know again it's like it's it's storytelling continually in a sense, even if it's not within the pages of a book and um I think that's also great because it keeps you in practice as a writer. And, of course, Anne keeps me in practice because she, uh, she's very good at... Now, her BS detector is very um, very well refined. Um, oh, yes. And, of course, she has to roll her After eye. years of living with and you. And the other thing is that, that I have this tendency to want to kind of tell stories when we're in, in like you know, a dinner party or something like that. And, and Anne has to stop herself from saying, that's not true, it didn't happen that way, whatever. No, no, no. What happens I, is when,
1: when Jeff tells a story... The friends listen, and then they look over to me to see whether I nod my head or say, no, that's not true. Because they know that when he's telling a story, it's he's either telling a story or he's telling a story.
0: <laughs> I've been speaking with Anne and Jeff Vandermeer. <laughs> Uh, they're the editors of Fast Ships, Black Sails, Steampunk, The New Weird, Best American Fantasy, and the editor of Weird Tales. Jeff's latest novel is Finch, and his latest book is Book Life, a guide to the writing life. Thank you for joining me, Anne and Jeff. Thanks so much for having. Thanks me.
1: for having us, Rick. It was great. <music>